Hello, this is the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Right now, Vanguard Court Watch operates in three counties in California, including San Francisco and Sacramento. Our goal is to shine a light on ordinary injustice in the court system. This podcast is hoping to go a step further and shine a light and a spotlight on criminal justice reforms on a national level. Today, we have University of Michigan professor Heather Ann Thompson on as a guest. She is the author of the book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. So welcome to our show. Great to be here. I recently read this book. It's actually very long, 724 pages, although I tore (laughs) through it in about a week. You can't put it down. Um what happened here. And I don't think a lot of people truly understand just how bad this thing was. I really got into this uh, almost by accident. I had been reading a number of books on prison reform and current bad conditions in prisons. And Attica is a frequent reference. And of course, as a former student of history, the Attica prison uprising is something that you kind of heard about, but hadn't really understood very well. And maybe that's due to the fact that I wasn't born until 1972, but uh, <laughs> maybe it's something that got lost in history. Um, but when I picked up the book, I was expecting to read about a prison uprising, part of what it's about. But this wasn't just about a prison uprising. Uh, this is something horrific that, again, I don't think a lot of people really understand. I've seen references to Malai. Um, but really, in one chapter, it felt like I was reading something out of the Holocaust, and it kind of brought mm. me back to 2005 when I w- was taking a class from the legendary Lombardo, um, who had just come back from Abu Ghraib. Um, mm-hmm. And so this felt a lot like the Stanford prison experiment in real life. Um, that's not an exaggeration, is it? No, no. And in fact, you know, it's interesting to hear you um, really remind me uh, how little we as a collective in this country understood about Attica and what happened there. We know the reference, you know, there have been songs, there have been, you know, Attica gets referenced in episodes of television, you know, the old Soprano show kept talking about Attica or even cartoons like SpongeBob SquarePants, you know, there's references Attica, Attica, Attica. But people didn't really know what it was, and it wasn't until I actually decided to write the book that I understood, uh, in part, why that was, which is that the story was horrific. It was uh, it was a story of uh, murder. It was a story of cover-up, and uh, it was a story that, frankly, took me 13 years to write because the state of New York still... Uh, has barred access to most of the records. And so we didn't know about it uh, for good reason, which is that uh, it was perfectly fine for state officials to leave it a little vague. And if anything, you know, have Attica connote the worst of the worst people who get locked up, when in fact it should have connoted some of the worst state violence in U.S. history, as you note, uh, like Milai. So... I'm really curious, how did you get into this in the first place? Mm-hmm. Well, so I'm a historian of the civil rights uh, era and uh, of 
uh, African-American history in general. And when I finished my first book, which was about the Detroit uprising of 1967, I was thinking about, you know, what, what else, you know, what, what, what needs telling, you know, what, what do we not know about? And I had always shown this film from the eyes on the prize series that had a, a segment on this prison protest, like a civil rights movement behind bars that had happened at Attica. And it intrigued me. And I thought, you know, I, I, I want to look at that. I, I think I want to do a book on that. Not having any idea that uh, it would, again, take me more than a decade, that it would take me to, uh, you know, to people's living rooms and their attics to try to re-piece uh, together the story. And I really, coming into it, didn't know anything about prisons. I had not really appreciated the extent to which you know, we were in the, you know, knee deep in mass incarceration. Uh, but doing that book coincided with, uh, really me working a lot on criminal justice issues in general and prisons and policing in particular. And so it became, uh, if, you know, really who I am now and what I work on now. But at the time it was quite by happenstance. You know, there were, there were civil rights issues behind bars. That's interesting. Uh, let me dig. Having no idea it would really change my life. And did you get to meet a lot of these people that were still alive, at least? I did. I mean, one of the really extraordinarily humbling things about doing this book was that when it became clear that there were no, there was no immediate access to the records, which I can tell you is a real blow to a historian. You know, we're used to going to an archive and asking for, you know, box 40, folder 3, and reconstructing a story, well, that was all barred. And every Freedom of Information Act I filed, you know, dribbled back with, you know, everything redacted. And I was very discouraged until I really uh, connected with the survivors of what was nothing less than a massacre, Um, both the guards who had been hostages, the prisoners who had managed to survive, the lawyers who had litigated the cases for the next 30 years, the judges, the um, you know, every imaginable character uh, that you could, uh, that, that comprised the story, I eventually tried to talk to, and that made it, that was a game changer. You know, it, it made me understand how important the story was, and I say humbling because I didn't myself have any clue uh, how traumatic it was until I sat in people's living rooms and, you know, heard it firsthand. So, I was hoping you'd be able to kind of lay out exactly what the horrible conditions were in the prison that led to the prisoners actually. Um, Would you describe this as a revolt, as a glorified riot? How would you best describe it? Well, that's a great question because I think it's always been described, uh, certainly uh, to the extent anyone knew anything about it, it was always described as a riot. And in the book, I uh, take uh, great care to think about what happened, what led nearly 1,300 men to take over this prison. And what I discovered was the conditions were terrible. I mean, it's very deeply ironic because in many respects, prison conditions today are worse than they were in 1971, which which should kind of horrify all of us, and we can talk about that um, later. But uh, they were bad. You know, prisoners were being fed on 63 cents a day. Um, you know, the parole rules were so capricious that you could get parole, but you could never get out unless you actually had a job waiting for you. Um, you couldn't see the mother, you know, they couldn't see your children if you weren't married to their mother. 
um, you know, there's a lot of racial violence, a lot of abuse, people uh, being kept in solitary confinement. And all of the prisoners uh, were trying to work through the system to get these things remedied. They weren't asking to get out. They were simply asking for basic human rights, you know, enough food, uh, you know, re- the ability to practice their religion, these kind of basic things. And the state did nothing. And on September 9th, 1971, when it all explodes, ironically, it was a management, another day of management excess that actually triggers this, not planning, not, you know, outright revolution. But what took it from being a riot, that is to say chaos and violent, and everyone doesn't know what's happening, and it's, it's, it's a melee, to being an uprising was that cooler heads prevailed. And Within, you know, 45 minutes uh, out in one of the exercise yards, the yards, you had um, the prisoners coming together and realizing that it was an extraordinary opportunity to tell the world uh, what it meant to be in prison in America. And, you know, believing that if Americans really knew what this looked like, you know, what they sentenced people to, they would um, be taken aback. And so they brought in the media and they brought in observers and you know, it was really an extraordinary moment of participatory democracy where they negotiated or tried to negotiate with the state of New York for better conditions, you know, basic human rights behind bars. And that was one thing that really struck me um, when I read the book. You would think, oh, you know, 1,300 people who are in prison, all these men, uh, all of a sudden, they're they're almost set loose. They're within the confines of the prison, but they're you know free to roam around now. You would think all heck would break loose, um, and, mm-hmm. and you do have that the the early rape scene that you set out. But it, it really struck me the care that the prisoners took to protect the hostages. They brought in the observers, hoping that they would really guard against uh, overreaction by the state. And even that didn't help. Yeah, and I think that for me, just as a, a writer, but I think uh, many readers have told me that one of the interesting things about this whole story is the inversion, you know, mentally. Like, you know, you, you really are forced to question, that, you know, who's, who's acting humanely and who isn't, you know? And, and who, who is it that's behind bars? You know, many of these guys, some of them were 19 years old. They were there on parole violations at Attica. Um, you know, there's the guy in the book who, you know, the first night out in the yard, you know, they're not trying to escape, but he's, you know, he's got tears streaming down his face because he's been locked up. And he says, I haven't seen the stars in 20 years. Like, you know, you just, you kind of are really jolted into this realization that what they were asking for was, was basic. And that even the people in there who one might imagine were the worst of the worst, um, did not stop being human uh, when they were serving time. And that kind of comes across. So yes, they take care of the hostages because they recognize that they need hostages or else the state will just come in there and kill everybody. But they, you know, surround them with prisoners to make sure they're not harmed. They feed them first. They give them mattresses out of the cells. And, um, and then they elect people to negotiate for them out of each of the cell blocks. Um, there's a lot of Spanish-speaking prisoners. Everything's translated in Spanish up at the negotiating table. And I think all of that is very eye-opening because of what we have come to think of as, you know, uh, that, that prisoners are animals. And then you have the 
utter brutality of the retaking of the prison, which uh, you paint in in such stark terms, so horrifying to read. Yeah. Well, and I have to say, as a writer, that was uh, that was the hardest part of doing this entire book. Was it was sort of a fe- feeling of uh, being overwhelmed by how much violence there was and, and wanting to be sure that I could narrate it in such a way that, uh, you know, that we didn't want to just put it down in disgust, but could somehow really appreciate what had happened. And, and, uh, it was indeed overwhelming. I mean, the, the, the state of New York has every opportunity to negotiate a peaceful end. And I discovered that they really had no intention of doing that. And they sent in, hundreds of heavily armed state troopers with uh, and corrections officers with every imaginable weapon, including weapons outlawed by the Geneva Convention. And, uh, you know, this is after tear gassing everyone so that they're retching and vomiting and blinded and crawling around. And there is a shooting uh, spree that results in 40 people, um, you know, 39 people, guards and hostages alike, alike being shot to death. But but a total of 128 people being shot, some of them so severely, you know, six, seven bullet wounds. And, you know, this is where we come to understand why we don't know more about prisons or even Attica, which is that at that moment when this carnage happens, the state of New York steps out in front of that prison and tells the American people that something completely different happened. It tells the the American people that the prisoners killed the hostages and that they actually castrated one of them and that they slit their throats and all these things that were actual lies. But that lie went out on the front page of the New York times, the LA times, the AP newspapers. So every, you know, small town in America. And, uh, you know, that was, that was a game changer because up until that moment, we were in a civil rights moment where people polled said, yeah, prisoners should have basic human rights. And, and, you know, we had gotten rid of the death penalty in America. And, we, you know, and then you know, on the wave of these lies and this kind of willful covering up of what the police had done, people said, oh, my God, the prisoners did that, you know, lock them up longer, bring back the death penalty. And so Attica is one story, but it actually had enormous resonance in a way that I'm not sure uh, we appreciate you know, or appreciated it at the time even. And I was shocked because my perception of, of Nelson Rockefeller was kind of this liberal Republican. He was actually, you know, one of the people pushing the Kennedy administration to go further on civil rights. And here he is operating in this capacity. Well, right. And of course that was a surprise even as I was, you know, researching this. So Nelson Nelson Rockefeller is the governor and he had, you know, he was known for being such a liberal Republican, particularly compared to Richard Nixon, who had become president. And, um, and you know, you get knee deep into the story and you realize that, you know, as the Republican Party was becoming more and more conservative, he desperately wanted to be president. He had tried to be president. Nixon got it and he didn't, you know, within, within his own party. And so Attica becomes this moment where he gets to cut his teeth on uh, law and order conservatism, where he gets to really show that he's tough on uh, crime and criminals. And, and he's applauded for that by Nixon. I, you may remember in the book, I mean, 
there's this incredible exchange between him and Nixon on the day of this retaking, this brutal, bloody. I mean, it is, as, as the title of the book, Blood in the Water, because one of the prisoners said, you know, I looked up from all the shooting and all I could see was blood in the water. I mean, Nixon says, basically, in the midst of all this, well, I only essentially have one question. Was this a black business? <laughs> and Rockefeller says, you know, essentially, you know, why, yes, Mr. President, it was. And that's all Rockefeller, that's all Nixon needs to know, right? Which is we really interesting because of what came out this week with regard to uh, Nixon and Reagan's conversations. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, the, the we didn't have the social media that, to the, you know, that, that we have today then, but um, it doesn't take a lot of probing to understand the way in which race was animating criminal justice then as it does today. And certainly uh, the fact that this was portrayed as a black uprising had everything to do with why the public was willing to see the prisoners as aggressors, not victims. But it also explains why they were able to, you know, why they did what they did. Um, in fact, the rebellion was quite racially mixed. And I don't want to lose sight of this. So after the the retaking, when they're shooting everybody up and uh, they're killing people, whether or not they're involved in anything, and you know the guards end up uh, getting caught in the crossfire, these guys go through and they start torturing the uh, the prisoners. Yeah, and in this, actually, you know, again, you know, one of the one of the overwhelming moments trying to narrate this was the retaking itself but then it was the additional uh it was the additional torture that then follows that retaking and what's really extraordinary about that is that the prisoners had been saying for decades that this is what happened to them and the state of new york has always and continues to really deny that that's what happened to the prisoners at attica but Part of doing this book was really delving into that. What happened to them? What happened to them once law enforcement had full control of the prison? Once people are bleeding and wounded and being rehoused in their cells, then what happened? And what happened, as you as you note, was horrific. And the Justice Department was presented with that information and did not file a civil rights suit. The Rockefeller administration fought tooth and nail to make sure that uh, those prisoners would never have their day in court to prove that it had happened. And uh, it turns out that, in fact, and this was really the, the, the crux of the Attica story and why we don't know about it now, um, the Rockefeller administration actively worked to cover up uh, that torture. And uh, that's a big statement. Historians don't use the word cover-up lightly, um, but it was literally the case that the state police were put in charge of the investigation of Attica, the same ones that had retaken it. Some of those investigators had actually shot prisoners at Attica. Um, they doctored film. They, they uh, destroyed photographs. Um, and at the end of the day, the only people that ever went on trial for the horror of what had happened there were prisoners. None of the state troopers, and I could not figure out how that had happened until I really came across, frankly, some smoking gun documents that made it clear to me what had happened. And that was by chance, by luck. We still wouldn't know otherwise. And that's one of the things that I'm always looking at when I'm 
reading a book like this um, is what did we know at the time versus what we learned from this book? Yeah, well, of course, the prisoners knew what was happening to them. The troopers knew what they were doing to them. And the state of New York knew that its troopers had done these things and were continuing to do these things because they were actively protecting them. And that is the was sort of kind of, I don't know, just dis- disappointing or I don't even alarming thing that you come away with, which is when you realize that the people in this story that actually had power, the people that could have done the right thing, made a difference, um, held people accountable for what they had done here. Um, every, everybody bails on their social responsibility. Um, everybody uh, covers up rather than um, seeks the truth. And not everybody, actually. I mean, the other piece of the story, which is, I think, um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, but I, I think it's also the, the flip side of this. There's a lot of heroes and heroines in this story, people who are also unlikely, who are faced with what they've discovered, and they do have to go public at enormous personal expense. The coroner, for example, who, you know, he sees the bodies, and even though the Rockefeller administration has said that the prisoners killed the hostages, he can see they've all been shot and none of the prisoners have guns. And he goes public with that at enormous personal cost. So it's kind of this crazy, uh, crazy story of people who should have done right didn't and people you wouldn't necessarily expect to step up did. Yeah, I, I mean, you've anticipated one of my questions here, which was going to be, who are some of the heroes? Um, I, I think the guy's name is Baden. Uh, the uh, yeah, coroner. Michael Michael Baden. Yeah, I mean, well, he was the local coroner, and he just he refuses to continue the story that the the prisoners had killed the hostages, um, and um, he, you know, he's he's hounded for the rest of his life for that. And the Rockefeller administration brought in two other coroners to try to undermine him, who ultimately also saw bullet wounds. But by then, of course, the story was, you know, it was old news that the prisoners had killed the hostages. It was really hard to correct that narrative. But but there were other, you know, there was, you know, the prisoners themselves who never stopped fighting to have their story told. Um, it takes them 30 years before they end up in a courtroom. Um, the the judge who ends up finally settling in the civil case for the Attica brothers who, you know, he was a friend of Rockefeller's, but by the time this case ends up on his docket, he, he's an incredible, uh, he's moved by their story. And he actually, he has them come to his courthouse and tell what happened to them without being cross-examined just so there'll be a record of it. I mean, it's really kind of extraordinary. Yeah, that was really interesting, and I was kind of weighing in my mind because, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, they had sued the state of New York and um, some of the leadership. They uh, they end up starting to get, you know, massive rewards, and then it gets appealed, and they end up doing this weird kind of settlement. Yeah. But But what was really interesting is then the judge basically um, bears witness to everything that happened. And so even though they don't get a lot of money, they get to tell their story. Yes, exactly. And, and, and again, this is somebody who's Republican, uh, 
you know, jurist who, you know, came out of a pretty conservative, I think, legal tradition. But when he is actually faced with these men and, uh, you know, he's, he's, you know, emotionally uh, moved and feels it's really important that they get to document their stories. There's this one guy who, for example, he told me this story, really moved him in particular, which is the guy who was a very tall gentleman who had... uh, he was in Attica, and but had been scouted for at the NBA. He was a very, very good basketball player. And when Judge Tolaska met him, he kind of takes a long time to get to the to, to the uh, the dais, and you know he's kind of walking very oddly up there, very you know haltingly. And he apologizes to the judge for taking so long. And essentially, what becomes clear to the judge is the reason why he can't walk very well, the reason why he's so crippled is because during the retaking, the, the troopers took the butts of their guns and smashed every bone in his foot because they knew he was a potential football player. You know, that kind of gratuitous, gratuitous violence that, you know, when faced with it, some human beings said, we don't care and we're going to cover it up. And others said, that is so horrific and I'm going to make sure the story gets told. But I was also struck by the resistance from the judges to hold these people accountable. Um, judge after yeah. judge just yeah. let them off the hook. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the other thing I know that you cover so much on courts and it's such an interesting uh, moment in history to look at because, um, you know, the, just so that your audience knows, I mean, the first third of the book is about the uprising the second third of the book is about the criminal trials that follow it, where only the prisoners are being held responsible. But the last third is about how the hostages and the prisoners, you know, use the civil court system to try to get some modicum of justice. But the theme throughout all three sections is these judges uh, who, you know, there's a few heroes, you know, <laughs> Judge Curtin and in the beginning and, and you know, and, and then the uh, Judge Teleska at the end, but there's so many judges in the middle who, you know, just do everything in their power to obfuscate justice. It's really kind of amazing. One of the things that was really interesting is we see so much of modern criminal justice reform embedded into this story. So, first of all, we got the, the wrongful conviction issue. Um, these guys get uh, convicted for killing the prison guard, Quinn. Uh, clearly, right. they're not the ones that did it, but, oh, what the heck, we'll just punish somebody, right? Right. Um, and then, uh, so, so they they eventually get out, right? They do. Uh, when the judge, uh, or, or the the new governor um, did the blanket. Uh, well, yeah. So yeah. there's a whistleblower within the Attica investigation that essentially it becomes clear that the entire investigation into Attica that had been run by the troopers and that had been orchestrated by the Rockefeller administration was just a disaster. But rather than actually do it right, they give blanket immunity to the troopers and they uh, overturn those who had been convicted and the, uh, the prisoners who'd been convicted uh, of riot-related charges. Um, and yeah, so so <laughs> there's the wrongful the wrongful conviction theme, the theme of terrible conditions, the theme that is really striking to me, which is that our prisons today are massive. We lock up more people than any other country on the planet, and yet 
we the public pays for them. We we they exist in our name, you know, presumably to make our nation safer. And yet there is zero access to them. There is zero transparency. There's zero accountability. And that is also very eerily resonant of Attica. And what I hope the book shows is the terrible, terrible cost of allowing those institutions to operate in the dark. Um, and we have plenty of examples today of recent prison uprisings where every indication is that the same horrors that went on at Attica are going on today. Yeah, in fact, one of the reasons I got interested in the prison issues uh, in the first place um, was that we do a lot of work with wrongfully convicted people. And right. when, you, when you read their stories, then all of a sudden you're reading about the prison conditions of all these people that shouldn't be in prison. Of course, you know, the Attica story is interesting because there's a parallel there because a lot of the people in Attica shouldn't have been in prison, uh, not necessarily yeah. because they were innocent, but uh, you would expect that, you know, they'd be the worst of the worst. And some of these people were there for very minor things. Right. And I think that for me, you know, again, I, I mentioned that I had not really known very much about the criminal justice system or prisons when I began that so long ago now. Um, but one of the things that doing that book really, uh, really revealed to me in a, in a way that was quite surprising is really what you're saying, which is that it's not who you expect that's inside often. Um, and who is inside are, you know, it's us, you know, it, it's, you know, it's our mothers, our brothers, our, our, our fathers. It is us. It is the society who is in there. And that, that means that even if someone has been sentenced to time for whatever reason, right, there's still people. And if, if nothing else, I really hoped that that book made that point so that we do think today about the fact that, you know, there's so many people behind bars right now, you know, seven and a half million people in this country right now ensnared in this criminal justice system. And, you know, of course, a large percentage of them have, um, you know, maybe done nothing or done very little that would, that would constitute prison. But even of those who, you know, maybe committed great harm, Attica shows that prisons are horrible places. They don't, they don't do what we hope that they will do. They don't make people, uh, you know, they don't make society safer. They don't make people better because they are closed. They are, they are not transparent and all manner, all manner of horrors go on in them. And so then they can't be very effective. You know, they can't do what we imagine them to do. Yeah. Uh, New York uh, University law professor Rachel Barco was out here a couple weeks ago uh, giving a presentation. And she made the point that 95% of the people put in prison are going to be released at some point. And she also made the point that the statistics show that the longer that you're held in prison, the more likely you are to reoffend. Exactly. For many reasons, actually. I mean, not just because prisons are such brutal, dehumanizing places, but also because we have so many sanctions on people with a criminal record that when they come out, they don't have a place to live, they can't get a job, and so it's human need that often forces people back to selling drugs or whatever the thing is that landed them there in the first place. So she's absolutely right. And I think that what I hoped Attica would do was to, to kind of persuade people that, yes, this happened, you know, now, you know, 40, 
seven years ago, 48 years ago. But that what happened there is a real uh, eye opener about how we got here today with such a large justice system, criminal justice system, and also like what we need to look out for. Um, you know, California, of course, has so many prisons. And, um, you know, and, and what does it mean that the citizens of California pay so much money to keep those institutions operational, and yet no one is accountable for what goes on behind those walls? Um, when 95% of those people will be coming home and be your neighbor, right? We have an obligation to make those places humane because we care about public safety. Yeah, and I think one of the problems is nobody knows what's going on behind those walls, exactly. or at least the public doesn't. Uh, so exactly, have we even, and that's by design. Have we even learned anything from Attica, in your view? You know, I, that's a great question, because I, I people, it's very difficult to write a book and, and to come away from all of that tremendous struggle that people had to make things better, and simply to say, well, you know what, things are much worse. And so when I realized that, in fact, the criminal justice system had taken such a terrible turn after Attica, that was very, it was a very demoralizing conclusion to draw from this prison uprising. But then I realized that actually it is true that, um, that things took a terrible turn after Attica, but it's also true that that's because we never fully understood what had happened there. And to get that story right, to understand our history correctly, to really know what's going on, I think actually does arm us tremendously to make better decisions. And so, you know, that is the connective tissue to today. It means that, you know, we do need to demand access to the places that we pay for. Can you imagine, you know, to think about the public school system, if you had public schools that had an 80% dropout rate, the American public would say, then we're not going to fund you anymore. And prisons have about an 80% recidivism rate, you know, they're failing. Um, so I'm hoping that what Attica does, even though what those Attica men struggled for was not realized in the long run, in fact, things got worse, that, the, that their model is that, you know, there was a moment when things could have, in fact, been much better, but we didn't get the story right. We we were told we were sold a false bill of goods to enormous cost to all of us. So I want to end on maybe a positive uh, note from the book, and I found one of the more powerful moments. And and believe me, there were many in this book. But the daughter of Quinn, um, mm-hmm. the guard that's uh, killed at the outset of uh, the uh, the uprising. Um, you know, she she goes through life and she's bitter and she's angry and you can understand why. Um, and then there's a moment where she kind of realized that this guy, Michael Smith, who was kind of the nice guard uh, who treated the, the guys well, was a decent guy and he was a victim himself and he was actually telling the truth about what was happening. And it was almost a restorative moment where she just kind of, understood that there was another perspective here. Maybe you can share that. I I think that's a good note to end on here. Absolutely. And there's so many like that. That woman, her name is Dee Quinn Miller. Her father was killed in those first moments of the uprising because he was in the middle of the prison. and was kind of overrun by so many people. And he died. And she spent a lifetime thinking prisoners were animals and hating all of people who were behind bars. And she 
through the course of this story, gets to know the guard who was also shot to death by the state of New York and, and befriends him and gets to hear his perspective, as you just noted. She also meets the prisoners who actually carried out her father on a mattress so that he could get medical care in the middle of all that chaos. She met those guys, and she becomes this warrior for justice uh, so that the guards' families can finally be heard. And, you know, her life was transformed. You know, I have to say my life was transformed, getting to know all those people. I got to know Dee well, Michael Smith I got to know, and, and they changed my life. I mean, it was really an extraordinary experience to chronicle their narrative, and it does give us hope. I think the book does end with that sense that it is a David and Goliath story in that sense. And, it, and it's very powerfully positive as well. Well, I want to thank you for uh, spending the time to be on the show. Um, this book, uh, I'm not exaggerating, is one of those books that I'm going to remember for a long time. It really opened my eyes to something I didn't know about. And I don't feel like I'm a naive person. And so, you know, I think if, I don't know about it. A lot of people don't know about it. The book is uh, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. We've been talking with Heather Ann Thompson. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. And it's been another episode of the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. We will return shortly with uh, some more stories from our criminal justice system. Thank you for joining us today.